Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. It's a hot one. My, oh, my, it's hot outside. But the jobs are also hot. We're going to have Jobs Day every angle covered as jobs numbers smashing expectations. Maddie Dupler's here, as is Mark Ross. Maddie Dupler's the senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director for the House Republicans. Mark Ross, founder of Caracol Global, a firm that specializes in geopolitics at this globalization times. President Trump talked to the media before taking off for his Jersey golf course. I guess Mar-a-Lago is even hot for him this time of year. I'll bring you the latest on what he had to say and my colleague Jonathan Farrow interviewing Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, about those job numbers, about as well the back and forth between President Trump and Fed Chair Jay Powell. I guess it's really only a one-way street, though, because Jay Powell hasn't really done too much responding. All right, lots to break down. Busy week. Hope everybody saw the fireworks last night. Didn't rain too much on the parade. TGIF is right, Nancy. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I am joined by Maddie Dupler, Senior Fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, the former Coalitions Director for the House Republican Conference, and Mark Ross, founder of Caracol Global, a firm in D.C. based that uh, that that spends in geopolitics and globalization, smashing job numbers. I mean, call it what you want. They beyond beat expectations. That's what I want to start off today. The hiring picked up in June by adding 224,000 new jobs to the U.S. economy. My number of the day, 224,000 jobs added to the U.S. economy in the month of June. This is remarkable. I mean, I, I think the estimate was like not even cracking 200,000. Nope. I mean, it, it was, you know, really, really remarkable. Maddie, I, I know you've crushed, crunched the numbers every <laughs> which way. So do your thing right now and, and, and tell us 
you know, what you're gathering from I mean, these Kev, numbers. Kev, you're giving me too much credit. I don't crunch any numbers. <laughs> I read what BLS crunched, and then we talk about it. But, yeah, I don't do uh, calculators. <laughs> Let me just tell you. Go ahead. Uh, you're right, though. The expectation was 170,000 jobs. So 224 obviously blows that expectation out of the water. That comes after May's disappointing job uh, re- uh, report as well from BLS, where we only added 72,000 jobs. Um, and it comes on the heels of an ADP private sector jobs uh, report on Wednesday. We got that a day earlier of course, because of the holiday that came in soft, about 40,000 jobs, fewer than had been expected there. So the entire picture was leading up to kind of this report with BLS saying, yep, the economy's slowing. We've got headwinds from trade that the Fed has been weighing. And going into this July Fed meeting, the question was, how much is the economy slowing, particularly when we look at the employment picture? That is not that there is still a very robust labor market. Um, if you'll recall, back in May, when we had like a really, or excuse me, back in um I think it was in February, we had a really robust uh, jobs number. Neil Kashkari, who is the Federal Reserve Chair of Minneapolis, had tweeted, we're still not at full employment. So this question that the Fed continues to con- yeah. contemplate, which is what is full employment, um, when we get these blockbuster job numbers, you've got Fed officials who are saying, hey, we're still not there. There's still Don't slack in the labor market. Don't you love this, Mark? Because, I mean, it's like all due respect to the Fed. And I've got a lot of respect for the Fed. They always do these wonky questions that, that Maddie's doing. Like, what, what is full employment? You know what full employment is? It's Americans not having to take on part-time jobs or two- and three-time jobs. And we're going to dive into that coming on later in the show. We're also going to hear from a, a, the spokesperson for Senator Cory Booker's campaign. She's going to call in as well. But on this issue, these are good numbers for President Trump. There's really no other way to look at it. You've got 200 and uh, this is 224,000 jobs added to the economy, but unemployment is at 3.7%. That is still the lowest unemployment rate of Americans recorded since you ready for this? December 1969. So low unemployment, you have to go all the way back to 1969 in December to find that 3.7 And these numbers are added. So this Fed debate on whether or not to raise rates, cut rates, the president wants them to cut rates. Why is this even being had? I think it's really interesting because if you look at the May number, it was so disappointing. And if you do a two-month average, which I don't know if that's proper economic analysis, (laughs) but that puts you somewhere in 150. Um, But there are a lot of headwinds, you know, looking outside of America in terms of the global economy slowing. There's still no clarity whatsoever on any kind of trade situation. Uh, you know, U.S. Mexico is still up in the air. U.S. China is completely up mm-hmm. in the air. Um, and I was, I'm wondering, is the job numbers a reflection that the people who do make these decisions already think the Fed is going to reduce rates? Like, did they accelerate hiring in mm-hmm. anticipation? Are we over? This is a great number, no doubt, but yeah. are we over-reading it? Well, so what we're looking at now for the year is about 172,000 jobs created every month, which is still a great number. It is lower than the average for last year. Last year, I think we were around 220,000 jobs created every month. Where are so, the jobs being created? Or excuse me, where jobs are being added. I shouldn't added. say created. Added is probably where, a better where metric. Are they be, where are they be, but what sector? Well, are that depends on what month you're talking yeah, about. I mean, again, month. when you look at the first quarter, you've got a lot of seasonal factors there. You've mm-hmm. got a lot of weather pressures that were really putting a lot of weight on some industries. This month, it is noteworthy that we saw a bump up in manufacturing, which, is, which is one that we've not been seeing a lot 
lot of robust growth. And, and of course, when you uh, put your political lenses back on, manufacturing, of course, is the number one component that the president is weighing when he's talking about jobs. I've said, Maddie, I totally agree. Mark, I know you agree too, or correct me if you don't, but I mean, manufacturing is really the foundation of this president's political coalition, and it, it, it transcends in many ways uh, political ideology in, in these battleground states. You both brought up the Fed. President Trump, before he took off for uh, his Jersey his Jersey golf course, he I, I'm not even going to do an intro. Here's the president talking about Fed chair and the job numbers. Here he is. Take a listen. We're paying a lot of interest and it's unnecessary, but we don't have a Fed that knows what they're doing, so it's one of those little things. But if we had a Fed that would lower rates, you would have a rocket ship. Oh, and, <laughs> It's one of those little things. I mean, you got to love it. I mean, it, you know, I mean, for us, for us economic dorks, I mean, it's, it's like, oh, come on. It's a big deal. The Fed. But uh, uh, OK, so where do we go with this? So, I mean, the president's still putting pressure on. I think the, the consensus here inside of the Beltway is that he's doing that. And numbers do take a turn. And there's that fascinating Bloomberg terminal chart that shows Wall Street Mark gets jittery every time there's good eco data because they think, oh, it can't go on that long. It can't go on that long. And then every time there's, you know, good tariff news or, or a.k.a. no tweets, uh, stocks are, are less jittery and, and go up. But this feud that he has with the Fed. You're, you're, the Fed yeah. I thought was interesting. I mean, I, I think that's one of the greatest uh, comments I've ever heard about the Fed. He's possibly <laughs> right. It could be true. I have no idea. Maybe the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. But I thought it more interesting. Okay, I like uh, to think the Fed knows what they're okay. doing, for the record. <laughs> okay. But a more interesting tell I thought was the, uh, what your colleagues did earlier, the interview with Larry Kudlow on yeah, Bloomberg, where he said um, he would still like to see the Fed cut rates, which I thought was a bit of a tell, because like, it seemed to me, yeah, these numbers are good, but there's a lot of headwinds that we talked about externally. Let me, let me play for you that portion that you're referring to. Jonathan Farrow, my colleague, my friend, Jonathan, interviewed Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor uh, on Bloomberg Television earlier today. Take a listen. Not only do you have an inverted yield curve, which I think is somewhat troublesome uh, for the longer term, but the break-evens on the inflation, uh, you know, the tips break-evens, the five-year, Jonathan, is 1.5%, and that's a CPI number. So the PCE deflator that the Fed uses would be about 30 basis points less than that. So you're 1.25% inflation which is way below the Fed's target and what most people want. And that's the reason I think they should take back the uh, interest rate hike. So it's interesting because you heard talking about inflation, which is, of course, the other side of the coin of the Fed's dual mandate. On Jobs Day, we talk a lot about jobs, but that's only 50 percent of the equation for when the Fed decides to make some kind of move. It's interesting, too, because if you look at analysts today, most people are not backing off of the expectation of some kind of rate cut activity in July. But the difference between whether or not it's 50 basis points or 25 basis points is what's widening, which I think is an interesting debate to have because I think it's going to open up this whole other can of worms of whether or not monetary pools, monetary tools are useful if they are not used in a, in, uh, in a matter of scale that is important. So 25 basis points might not be enough to be stimulative to a market that is already pricing in that kind of activity. Fascinating, fascinating. Coming up, more politics, more policy with Mark Ross, Maddie Dupler. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Download, you can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Happy Friday. Friday, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. 
We are still in a very strong prosperity cycle. It's a growth cycle. It's a prosperity cycle. Here, uh, July 4th, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Things are looking pretty good. Uh, I can't explain the chronic pessimism. All I'll say is we have very good pro-growth policies, low taxes, deregulation, opening energy, trade reform. I think the incentives of our supply-side policies are working. That's Larry Kudlow talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness on July 4th. We got They, they got a good job number, 224,000 jobs added to the U.S. economy, smashing expectations, smashing expectations, which had they were expecting like 175,000 uh, for the month of June. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I hope you and your families had an excellent 4th of July. Here with me, Maddie Dupler. As Maddie Dupler is fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference, and Mark Ross, founder of Caracal Global, which specializes in geopolitics. Did you have a good fourth? Sure did. Did you see any of the Washington D.C. is the best place to be on July fourth? Whether there are flyovers, tanks, or nothing, my neighborhood puts on a spectacular fireworks show. So it didn't even matter that we couldn't see the National Mall because of the clouds. Mark? Yeah, wonderful. Uh, we went to a barbecue, very all-American, and my wife won the beer pong tournament. Wow. Uh, great American. <laughs> Congratulations, Mrs. Ross. She cleaned up, beat 16 other competitors. There were tears. It was quite dramatic. There were tears. Well, it was kids versus adults. There were kids. kids involved, with the kids. Mark, I feel like this no is dr- not that kind like of show. Party. There was I no feel drinking like we got, involved. Listen, I'm a nerd, okay? I'm not trying to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, so this, so we were talking about jobs. We were talking about uh, about all of this, and, and, and there's the big uncertainty in, in the financial community is trade, is trade policy. Look, I mean, you guys know this. I mean, the the economic world, they, they largely are supportive of what the president's doing on deregulatory policies, the Wall Street crowd, but they cannot stand the issue of, of tariffs. And, and I do want to note just two data points that the president did speak with Fed Chair Jay Powell on May 20th, days after criticizing him. So he does have that line of communication into the central bank. And then on the issue of China, uh, the president is, is is saying that the trade talks are going to resume uh, and that they are going to start up again in Beijing. So they're saying, and this is according to Larry Kudlow in that interview with Jonathan Farrow, that the U.S. trade representative Bob Lighthizer and Secretary Mnuchin, that they've continued to have these ongoing conversations. I read that as trending in the right direction. We're not seeing, for example, Vice President Mike Pence attacking uh, <laughs> Huawei or giving speeches and attacking uh, Beijing, no? No, correct. I think uh, the last few days with Pence making that speech was a big deal. But uh, earlier in the week, uh, Peter Navarro uh, was on a different network, and he said that it's complicated, the U.S.-China relationship, and it's going to take time. Even today, uh, Kudlow suggested that you know we're, we are moving in the right direction, but once again, we have no clarity where exactly this is going to end or when we're going to come up to resolution. All right, so and then there's the politics of this, and it's already playing out in real time on the 2020 campaign trail. Did you guys see this? Former Vice President Joe Biden, he's trying to get past the whole busing debacle, mm-hmm. call it, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. from the first presidential debate down in Miami. He's campaigning today, and he's taking questions, and he says he refers to President Trump as, quote-unquote, the bully I've faced my entire life. And I want to say that he would be more of a tough uh, negotiator with China. Well, President Trump didn't like that. Here's that the president had to say before taking off for his uh, Jersey golf course. Take a listen. You look at what Joe Biden has done with China. 
We've lost our shirts with China, and now China's dying to make a deal. So Joe Biden's got a big problem, and that's because one of the problems that he has. One of them is that he came out of the gate swinging, saying that China's not a problem. He, he was he was making the case that the administration's got it wrong, that we don't be focused on China. There's other things that our foreign and economic policies should really be focused on. And so for him now to try and take a stance where he is trying to position himself tougher than the current administration on China, to me, just seems like, if not pandering uh it does not seem to be backed up by anything else this campaign um has been saying when it comes to china so i'm not quite sure how the biden campaign is going to square that circle um and i also think that this is where as you mentioned before kevin the rubber hits the road on 2020 the trump administration has positioned itself as being a china hawk they have said that they're going to take on china when all other administrations have failed in the past they deserve credit for that but they've also cornered that market then politically. So how do you as a Democrat say I can be tougher on China without adopting the same techniques and tactics the administration itself has taken? Because, of course, if you embrace the tactics, you can't campaign against them. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. The Trump uh, administration, the Trump team is completely owning and dominating the China issue. There's really no room. You know, whether you can discuss the tactics, whether or not it's, you know, to be so aggressive is the right way to go. But from a strategy standpoint, the business community, academics, think tanks, Capitol Hill, they're all pretty much in agreement that what the Trump administration is doing is correct with China. So for, you know, Joe Biden to suggest he's going to be tougher, uh, it's going to be super difficult. And I don't see how, you know, I think it's a bigger reflection of Joe Biden's campaign where he he seems in some way too casual Mm -hmm. about these really big issues that are creating problems for him. Yeah, and, you know, if only Nixon could go to China, Donald Trump now has positioned himself perfectly where regardless of what the deal is, he's the only president who got a deal with China. So going into 2020... Well, he didn't get a deal yet. No, but I'm saying that whatever he's setting setting the administration up for going into 2020, if he's able to claim any kind of victory, that sets him apart, not just from Democrats who are running, but from any administration prior to this point. And I will say that that the, the, the debate around trade feels l- different in the sense that it feels less political and it feels like a lot of folks, whether they're in the agricultural community, manufacturing, commodity markets, and Wall Street, Main Street, typical Main Street conversation around this. It feels less like – it feels like – it doesn't feel like it's political as much as it's like rolling up your sleeves and, and trying to get I mean, a, a, a deal. But, Kevin, that's because the president has taken pretty much every Democrat position on trade well, and that, turn into his and own. That's, that's and why. that, my friend, we will be studying for decades, decades to come. There's, the tariff man himself. There's books there. All right, coming up, we have much more politics and policy. We're going to check in with Cory Booker's campaign. Cory Booker's campaign on what uh, all of this is, is going on on 2020. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Happy Friday, folks. Happy of July. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. TGIF folks, I've got to work too, but happy 5th of July. Hope you got to see some fireworks last night. I want to pivot now to the 2020 race, uh, in particular how things are moving ahead of the second Democratic presidential debate coming up in a few weeks in Detroit, Michigan. Joining us on the telephone line, her first time on Bloomberg Radio Sound On, Sabrina Singh. She is the presidential campaign national press secretary to Senator Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey. Sabrina, thank you for joining us. How is Senator Booker going to stand out in a crowded Democratic field? Hey, Kevin Wolf, thanks for having me on. It's my first time, as you mentioned, so I'm really excited to, to be with you. Um, you know, I think we, we have so many debates ahead of us. Uh, the first one is out of the way. We still have 11 more to go. And as you said, at the end of July, we'll be in Detroit. And I think, you know, what Corey continues to need to do and will do is making his case to the American people on why he is the best candidate in the race. And so, you know, our goal is straightforward. It is going to be, you know, to introduce himself to to new voters that are tuning in again for the first time and watching these debates and making sure that people understand and, and voters and, and new audience members tuning in um, on why he's running and why he's not only the best candidate in the race, but why he's going to fight for, you know, children uh, to working families um, every day. And um, it's something that, you know, I think, I think we forget that, this election is still really far away. I mean, we're still I, I know it's like away it's, until the first vote is cast. Um, so we still have to keep doing our job of introducing himself to folks that are just tuning in for the first time. So what's his thing? I mean, seriously, I mean, we, we, we here are always trying to it's a, it's a place where the candidates stand on different issues. So on, on an issue like trade policy, for example, how would the how would Senator Booker? Uh, negotiate with the Chinese. We've seen this back and forth today with uh, former Vice President Biden barring with President Trump. Sure. Well, I mean, the well-being of Americans should be at the center of any U.S. trade policy, and that's exactly what Corey believes. You know, with 95 percent of the world's consumers living outside of the United States, trade is imperative, but it has to be fair. And American workers outcompete anyone else, but only if they are on a level playing field. So, you know, I think, I think we all can agree that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, should not be engaging in reckless games. Um, and, and, you know, I think what Corey will do is to make sure that there is a level playing field for folks, um, and especially hardworking people here in America, um, that we have fair trade policies to protect us and also that work for them. And so he also just, my understanding, he was just down the border, right? Uh, what, what, and, and he right. was. So, so, what, what, how would he handle this very contentious immigration debate? I mean, you know this, just you know, and and, and talking with throughout the years in Washington, just mm-hmm. how contentious the immigration debate has become. There was at one point that gang of eight, I believe, a couple of years ago, but it seems like. To, to be frank, a crapshoot that there would ever be bipartisan consensus on the issue of immigration. How would President Booker handle that? 
Well, you do say that it it could be a crapshoot, but I will say this, that uh, Cory Booker in the Senate did work with the Trump administration to pass uh, legislation that reformed our criminal justice system. So you can't say that nothing can be done. No, (laughs) Um, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. And, you know, I think I think Donald Trump's policies have um, created a uh, not only just a toxic environment, but we're putting migrants at risk. And um, and, you know, Cory this week on Wednesday traveled down to Juarez from El Paso. He met with asylum seekers. And, I, and you know, I think what Corey would want to do day one in office is ending this policy of child separation. Uh, you know, it is heartbreaking to see children uh, drawing pictures of where they are and in the conditions that they are in. I mean, there are pictures of them drawing them behind cages. Um, so, you know, we need to immediately end um, the child separation policy that this administration has put in place. And then, you know, also, and Corey says this on the trail all the time, is that we have to treat migrants with the rights that they come over with um, for whatever country they're coming across. There, there should be a process in place to, you know, of course, hear cases. But we have to remember that these are men, women, and children fleeing um, and seeking safety within the United States because they are fleeing from countries that they do not feel safe or protected in. And so we need to treat them like human beings and treat them with the respect and dignity that anyone coming into our country deserves. All right. Sabrina Singh is joining us. She is the press secretary, the national campaign press secretary to Senator Cory Booker's campaign. You've been very generous with your time. So I just got one more question. I got to ask because I was a huge Men in Black 2 fan. And Rosario Dawson, my friend, was on the uh, was campaigning with your boss. This is her first campaign stop. No, are we going to see her at the debate in Michigan? Oh, that's right. It was her first stop. We were super excited to have her out in Las Vegas. Um, you know, I don't know if we're going to see her in Detroit, Michigan. Um, definitely open to it, but uh, not sure. That's still, you know, a few weeks away. And. He's going to be, you know, Corey is campaigning all across the country right now. He's heading up to New Hampshire. So who knows where Rosario might join him on the trail. But uh, I do support that Men in Black 2 was a great movie. And uh, <laughs> I thought you're also a fan. And, you know, and, and listen, just for the record, Mnuchin was the producer of Avatar. Coming up next, we talk more politics and policy. Thank you, Sabrina, for calling in. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 91 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Happy Friday. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're talking all things politics and policy the day after the 4th of July bombshell bombshell smashing jobs day number 224,000 jobs added to the economy in the month of June it's already playing out on the 2020 campaign field as former vice president Joe Biden sparring sparring with uh, President Trump who kind of hit him back and said that he's tougher on trade tougher on all of this it's been a really fascinating week to just see how the 2020 looming presidential race has impacted many of the policy discussions coming out of washington dc it's why i'm so glad maddie duppler's here senior fellow at the national taxpayers union former coalitions director for the house republican conference as well as mark ross founder of caracal global which specializes in geopolitics and globalization for 
the world. Uh, I'm struck on how immigration, and we were talking about this earlier with the Booker campaign, and we talked about trade, obviously, but how immigration has played out on uh, on 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 the 2020 campaign trail, most notably the census question. I mean, the census comes around every 10 years. It's what everybody uses, Maddie, for the for the economic data and whatnot. And this question that's been that the president wants to be added to the census on citizenship has really become a national dialogue and the latest data point on immigration. Yeah, who would ever thought the census would get any moment of media in a presidential cycle, but here we are. It's gotten a couple <laughs> moments, too. I mean, it's, it's really been, like, there. Yeah, and, and, you know, Mark and I were just having this conversation um, in the break, and Mark was saying, he's like, what the president is trying to say to most Americans probably seems uncontroversial, which is when you're taking an accounting of American citizens, you should be able to ask them whether or not they're American citizens. So why is it controversial, Mark? And let's let's because this is great. Let's go very rudimentary here because I, I agree. I think most people are like, well, wait, what? I mean, I thought only citizens filled out the census. Well, it's controversial because is the census for counting U.S. citizens or is it for counting how many people actually reside in the United States of America? And the idea, if you ask the immigration or if you ask whether or not you're a U.S. citizen, will people not accurately answer the question? Well, that is, will they hide or not participate in the census? And if you look at will we get bad data, which, as you mentioned, businesses dependent on, we also set up how we set up our congressional districts. So can we get bad data? Can we have a gigo problem, right? So that is really the fundamental question. So what, is, so what are the solutions? The chief economist, Maddie Doppler, at the U.S. Census Bureau says that it, this could impact 6 million mm-hmm. folks that are, that are unreported. Well, I, and Kevin, I don't know the answer to that question because I think that it, it's hard to explain um, – to someone who is maybe skeptical that we have social services and other uh, other um, programs here in Washington, D.C. that require a direct accounting of who is receiving those services to say, well, like, yeah, of course, people who aren't necessarily citizens do qualify for those sorts of things. To me, that's like, you know, for those of us who are sitting here, that's not necessarily an uncontroversial statement. But we know in our political dialogue today that that is not necessarily the case. And that's not that's not a partisan statement. I mean, look back to President Obama viciously defending the fact that Obamacare itself won't go to people who are not actual citizens. I mean, this is something that has been controversial in our politics regardless of party. Okay, you ready for this? I mean, uh, this is so much so many of the issues we tackle on this show are are we love cuz you know, we dive into the weeds of these mm-hmm. complex complex policy issues. This census thing, they're literally, I mean, it's literally down to the wire. Like the printers are actual <laughs> copy of I'm not I'm not even kidding. No, no. Actual copies of the US census, that form that you get in the mail. They're actually being printed, and there's this huge question mark over whether or not to continue printing the census. What's the portal for census? Sensei? Sensei. Sensei. <laughs> to print these things Sensei. because of this heated debate. The courts are saying one thing. The, 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 the Census Bureau is saying that the administration's dropped it. And then President Trump, right before he leaves the White House to go to Jersey this weekend to his golf course, he weighed in on the census. Take a listen to the president of the United States. We're doing everything. We're finding out everything about everybody. Think of it. 15 to 20 billion dollars and you're not allowed to ask them, are you a citizen? Mark, I mean, there, I mean, he's, yeah. he's laying down the he, he's you know, he still wants the question out of. No, 100 percent. If we went into a coffee shop in my home state of Michigan and said, hey, do you think it's right or wrong that we should ask whether or not somebody's a citizen? The common sense approach to the census 
most Americans would say yes. So, but it's interesting to your point about the economist saying six million people may not participate. To give you a sense, that's like the, basically the size of Maryland, right? So, considering infrastructure spending, education spending, healthcare spending, uh, to not have an accurate number is very, very detrimental. But the politics here may win out the day. Well, Democrats are saying. I mean, so we have the business community saying that this is eco data. They've been actively lobbying against this The tech sector in particular, really, really pushing that this question not be added because these businesses factor this data into every forecast that mm-hmm. they make for the quarter. So there's the business element. But then there's the, the, the social safety net element to this. And Democrats are saying, you know, this data, this relates to schools. This relates to, to kids being able to, to go to quality schools. It's how we, we calculate everything in this country. So you're seeing, Maddie, Democrats really come out in full force and say, no, this question should not be on there. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how Democrats are able to play this. I do think that, you know, when you when you back out of the kind of macro picture of politics and all politics is local. Right. So when you start talking to people about their schools and about their social services and how those things are delivered, the conversation is different at the local level than it tends to be at the national level. So I'm curious to see if Democrats are able to really find a foothold here, because as Mark said before, like the president saying, hey, we should be able to ask citizens if they're citizens. This is an accounting of everyone who's in the country. That probably doesn't strike a lot of Americans as a super radical position to have. I think it's a, it's it, th- this census issue. I, I actually get very nerdy on because I think it's I think it's interesting. I think it is. I mean, I think it's how we it's we it's how we calculate data, and I think that we don't have enough conversations in the eco financial services world, particularly on on big tech data, for example. You know, I, I we think got that's the super jobs true. number. Yeah, that's super true. I have I have a friend right now who's getting her PhD talking about some of these issues about the data collection, how we know what we know when it comes to the political makeup of this country, and she's running into that problem. Well, she's saying like we just don't have enough information. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics and our, our you know who calculated the jobs numbers for example. I mean, how do we calculate the data of the new economy? How do we calculate the data of Amazon and not just the bricks and mortar stores that are going down in uh, in northern Virginia, but the but the, the the sales that are going down that we all do or most of us I use <laughs> on our phones? And I think that that data is so crucial. We don't have it's a little bit outdated. And I think that there's con- growing consensus in a nonpartisan lane that there has to be a conversation over data collection as a whole so that we can kind of all agree to the same levels of facts. All right, what's on your radar for next week, team? Uh, I think immediately is um, Christine Lagarde. Okay. Central Bank. Mm-hmm. I think that's super I interesting. I love this topic. So Christine Lagarde has been nominated, nominated to be the head of the Central Bank in Europe. Correct. I think it's interesting because she's not by training. She's a law lawyer by training. Also, I think it shows you the power of personality, how policy is becoming less important in terms of being in the weeds, but also being able to navigate political situations. How will she impact Americans? Oh, I can't wait to find out, Kevin, because here's the deal. She's been running the IMF, which is a Washington-based institution. She is someone who understands the Beltway, who's been a part of some of the mechanics here, and now she's going to be running the European Central Bank, which, if you're reading the Trump tweets about the ECB, he goes back and forth about whether or not he likes what they're doing, because they seem to be very, but also he thinks that they're manipulative in the way they look at their currency. Um, I think 
think having someone there, as Mark said, with savvy about the way the Washington political elite work, but also the way our economics, our, our economics and our politics work together is going to but be why, so why, interesting. Why should Americans care about who the head of the ECB is? Well, clearly, I mean, Europe is a massive economy, whether we like it or not as Americans. But, you know, it's a mass. It's bigger than our own economy, the European Union. Obviously, with Brexit happening, the transition. Maybe, uh, right? The, Maybe Brexit happening. I think Brexit. Well, okay. <laughs> Listen to Boris Johnson. Stay on topic, team. Um, go. Slowing, Ita- slowing Italian economy. You know, there's the peripheral economies like Portugal. You know, clearly the European Union is going through some kind of transition. Uh, Merkel moving on. You know, Christine Lagarde. Very high profile. Also, it takes her proud of out of the running for running for prime minister. right? And, they- and having a German bureaucrat move from echelons of the German uh, government into that position of leadership at the European Commission, European Commission, right? That will be interesting as well, because Germany, of course, is the linchpin of the European economy. I agree. I'm bullish on this Lagarde story. I think it's I think it's going to be fascinating. I think she's going to be the uh, sort of one of the one of the faces that I think that Americans, especially the Wall Street crowd and the, the Washington elite crowd, are going to really – similarly to the way uh, Merkel has, was for Germany. Mm-hmm. We have got like a minute left. Go ahead. No, I think too – even today, Biden's saying, you know, if Trump gets reelected, he's going to take us out of NATO. I, th- I think Europe and kind of Americans' role in the world is going to become more important, and we're going to spend more time talking about these European leaders. Uh, one last thing about what's happening, you know – the United States is not done litigating USMCA, so we're talking across the pond. But remember, uh-huh. in North America, we've got a free trade agreement that still needs to be litigated by Congress, and I want to see movement on that next week. All right. We could we could potentially. No? Do you think we'll see potentially, movement? Potentially, we could. We It'll could. be discussed for sure. It'll be All discussed. Right. Trudeau was here, what, last week, two weeks ago, saying nice things about it? You never know. There's never enough time for the All-Star <laughs> Jobs Day teammates. Maddie Dupler, Mark Ross, my thanks. That's it for me. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm Kevin. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.